The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Well, good morning, church. Good to see each of you here today. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23, titled this morning's message, Saved at the Last. I don't know about you, um, but I certainly remember this. We probably all remember this experience. We were most likely in elementary school or middle school when it happened. We wanted to play a game of kickball or dodgeball or something like that with our friends. And so what happens? Well, the, the two most athletic or perhaps the two most popular kids are declared captains. And then they take turns alternating, choosing teammates from the rest of the kids who wanted to play the game. And, of course, being chosen first was a badge of honor. It was, uh, you know, of all the remaining kids, this one kid, the first one, you know, making a statement. You know, you are worthy. You are, you are exceptional amongst all of these other kids. You stand out. Um, of course, on the other end of the spectrum uh, was an equal but opposite statement. The last one being chosen also made a statement. You know, of all the people here, it was the statement, of all the people here, I'm choosing you only because I have to. Uh, you're, you're the last one. I have no other choice. Um, you don't stand out in any way whatsoever to me. Um, and so no one likes being the last one chosen. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that either of those statements are true, that, that you're exceptional if you're the first one chosen or that, uh, that you have, uh, you know, you're unworthy if you're the last one chosen. I'm just saying that in the mind of an elementary school age child, these are the things that come to mind. But being chosen last isn't always a bad thing. Jesus himself said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And we recall that just a few chapters ago in 1 Samuel 17, or excuse me, 16, David was the last one of his brothers. He had, there was a total of seven of them in all, and he was the last one to appear before Samuel. And yet it was David who was ultimately chosen to be the next king. And in our text today, David is going to experience another last of sorts. Today in our text, David is going to be saved. At the last. And so if you're in 1 Samuel 23, say amen. All right, let's read that chapter, just one chapter this morning, beginning in verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keliah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines. And save Keliah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keliah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keliah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keliah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock, and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keliah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Keliah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand, 
Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keliah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keliah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keliah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keliah surrender me to his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keliah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keliah. And they went wherever they could. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keliah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish, in the hill of Hikaliah, which is south of Jessamine? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he, ha- and if, if he is in the land... I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jessamon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went to one, on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much.
for your time to entrust this Word to, a, to take men inspired by your Spirit to write down this Word from events that happened over 3,000 years ago. Words that are still, even today, profitable for our instruction. They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God might be equipped for every good work. And so we pray now that you would use this time that we have to mold us into your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my central idea for this morning's message is that no matter what life throws at us, God always gives us what we need. No matter what life throws at us, God always gives us what we need. And we're going to see in our text this morning, we're going to see four things that God gives us. Four things that God gives us. First, the first thing God gives us is God gives us an answer. An answer. Hopefully you recall that for the last two chapters, we, we covered this last week, David's been on the run from King Saul. Saul's, of course, been trying to kill him. David's moved no less than six times in the last two chapters, and he's finally settling in the forest of Hereth. And now as chapter 23 begins, David gets word that some of his countrymen in the town of Keliah are under attack from the Philistines. And this word gets to David so fast because Keliah is adjacent to the forest of Hereth. We're told that the Philistines were robbing the threshing floors of Keliah, which means that the Philistines had, were, they were stealing all of the harvested grain. They, they, they had waited for the people to plant the crops. They had waited for the crops to grow. They had waited for the people to go out and harvest these crops and bring them back to the threshing floors. They'd waited until all their labors were done and now the Philistines were coming in just to steal everything that the people had worked so hard to produce. It was as if the Philistines were robbing the First National Bank of Kaliah. That's what's happening. And so David inquires of the Lord and he prays to God and he asks God, and by implication, he's asking whether not only he, but his men as well. Should, should they go down and should they attack the Philistines? And the Lord responds very clearly to go and attack the Philistines and save Kaliah. But, but in verse 3, David's men are afraid. Now, remember, David's men aren't exactly Navy SEALs, all right? These were the men who were in distress. They were in debt. They were bitter in soul. It's it's a ragtag group of men. And now they're afraid. And let's be clear about that. We're not throwing stones at David's men because they're afraid. We're not judging them. We all get afraid from time to time. It's a natural human reaction. It's part of what it means to be human. we, We have fears. We have doubts. None of us are omniscient. None of us are omnipotent. And so we have to reckon with our finiteness. We have to reckon with our frailty. You know, we, we do, we live in a broken world where things, where there are things out there that can legitimately harm us. And so sometimes we are fearful. We become afraid. And that's where David's men are. But why are they afraid? It says that they, they said to David, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kaliah against the armies of the Philistines? What are they saying there? 
I think there's I think there's one of two things happening that are causing them to be afraid, and per- perhaps a combination of both. Because they they admit that they're afraid, just hiding from Saul. That's what they're doing. They're they're trying to keep off the radar. They don't they don't want to be on his radar because they know if Saul finds out where they're at, he's going to want to kill them. So they're afraid that someone might try to kill them. How much more would they be afraid if they go intentionally engage in a war where there are going to be people who try to kill them, right? That, that's the first way of understanding, you know, like, well, we're afraid that Saul might come and try to kill us, but if we're going to go attack the, pe- the Philistines, then they're definitely going to try to kill us, and we're afraid of that. That's one way of understanding it. A second way of understanding their fear is this. You know, they think, if, I, if we just lay low, if we, if we don't cause a ruckus, then Saul's never going to find us. You know, Judah's a big place. It's not like Saul had satellite imagery. Saul doesn't have access to GPS technology. He's not going to find them. And so, but if we go and we fight with the Philistines at Kaliah, if we go and do that, then word's going to get back to Saul, and Saul is certainly going to find out where we're at. Now, personally, I think it's a, a bit of both things happening simultaneously. At any rate, the Lord has given David a clear word to go up and fight against the Philistines. Yet because of the fear of his men, David inquires of the Lord a second time. And even though the Lord uses different words, He gives David really the exact same answer the second time. And this gives David and his men the confidence they need to go and strike the Philistines with a great blow, the text tells us. And David saves Goliath. But as they feared, word does get back to Saul. And David and his men, they've been located in Goliath. And Saul thinks, well, David's gotten himself into a mess now. He's put himself in a city where that has walls, that has bars. He's trapped himself in. If I get down there in time, David's not going to have anywhere to run. And so Saul gathers his soldiers. They, he's not only going to take David out. If you notice that in the text, he's not just interested in taking David out. He's going to take out the whole city of Kaliah. If, if that's what it takes for him to take David out, I'll take out the whole city. And so this leads David to go to the Lord for a third time in our passage. And this time he asks two questions. He asks, the Lord, my my uh, my watch just told me that that's the Spirit of the Lord doesn't understand. But maybe so. Maybe I need to do a little explanation here. That was strange. Uh, third time, he's asking a question. He asked this time two questions. First question he asks is, "Will the men of Kaliah give me up to Saul?" And second, "Will Saul come down?" Now, naturally, the second question has to happen before the first question. If Saul doesn't ever come down, i.e. Saul and his people, they don't ever come down, then the people aren't going to give David up to Saul. And so the Lord answers and says, yes, Saul is going to come down. But also, yes, the people of Kali are going to surrender you into his hand. Now, on the one hand, we might think, you know, is this the kind of thanks that David gets from the people of Kali? I mean, he's just rescued them, right? The Philistines were going to take him out and David has rescued them. He's saved them. And now to thank him, they're going to turn him over to Saul. But on the other hand, if they don't give him up, Saul is going to wipe out the entire city. The people of Kaliah are between the proverbial rock and a hard place. But at least knowing this information gives David and his men enough warning where they're able to get out of the city and make their way to safety. And so word gets back to Saul that the men aren't there and he calls off the chase, at least temporarily, right? 
Now, what do we see happening in these first 14 verses? Let me, let me make some application here. Three times, or depending on how you're counting, we might even say as many as four times, David inquires. David asks God for an answer. And every time the Lord gives David an answer. And notice this about the answers. The answers that David gets, the, the answers that are given to him, aren't always the answers that he wanted to hear. You know, I'm quite certain that David would have rather heard that Saul wasn't going to chase after him, right? He, he would have rather heard that the people of Clio, no, they're, they're, they're not going to turn you over to Saul. And I'm sure David's men probably would have rather heard, you know, yeah, it is a good idea just to lay low. Don't bother going down to fighting against the Philistines. Stay, stay off Saul's radar for right now. Those are answers that they probably would have wanted to hear. But God in His wisdom doesn't tell David what David wants to hear. God tells David what David needs to hear. Even if David's not going to like it, God gives it to him anyway. And beloved, here's the application for that. And I want you to think about that application in two ways. Number one, application is we're uh, giving answers to others. And application is we're receiving answers from others. So we're going to, we'll start with the giving of answers. Before we give an answer, though, let's, let's also be quick to recognize that, that we're not God, okay? When, when we're asked for advice and we're giving answers to others, we're not God, which means by definition our perspective is limited. We don't, we don't know all the factors that are playing, and so we need to keep that in mind when we're giving answers. But when we provide answers, whether those answers are to an individual or whether those are answers, if you will, to a group or to, a, to, a, to the culture at large, we need to be careful that we don't respond in a way that we think, well, this is what they want to hear. We need to be truth speakers. And by that, I don't mean my definition of truth. I don't mean your definition of truth. I don't mean their definition of truth. I mean God's definition of truth. We need to be truth speakers. And while I'm on the subject, by the way, of truth speaking, let me say this as well. We don't need to be a horse's behind about how we speak the truth, okay? Um, sometimes we'll say something rather harsh and bluntly, frankly, in an unloving way, and then we say, you know, I'm sorry, that's just something that needed to be said. Um, those things typically don't bother me that much. I, I grew up, my mother's German. My mother's very frank and very straightforward. My wife tells me, hey, that's the reason, Brian, and she says, sweetheart, that's the reason that doesn't bother you is because you grew up in an environment where your mother was just very direct with you. And so those, those things don't bother me too much, but we do need to remember to speak in a Christ-like manner when we're talking with brothers and sisters in Christ. So, beloved, in other words, it's, it's possible that we can say or do the right thing, but we would say it or do it in an unchristlike manner, which would mean we've done it the wrong way. Okay? So we need to be careful about how we speak. But anyways, when... when when, when we're on the providing end of answers, we need to make sure that what we say is true. And we need to make sure that what we say is said in a Christ-like way. So that's application from giving answers. Now, application from receiving answers. And in particular, receiving news that we don't want to, you know, answers that we like. I didn't really want to hear that answer, right? Because I don't... I might be wrong, but probably none of us mind receiving an answer that we go, oh, I like that answer, right? We, we, we don't mind receiving words that, that we agree with. It's when somebody tells us something that we don't agree with. Like if we're, if we're told, for example, that we've behaved in a particularly sinful way, 
We, we typically don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. You probably don't like to hear that. Now, our actions may have been sinful, but we still don't like to hear it. So, but how, do, how should we respond? You know, David here received some answers that he didn't want to hear. How should we respond when we hear an answer that we don't want to hear? I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you two principles that I, that I deal with in my own life. And it's first is, I always ask myself when I receive an answer I don't want to hear is, is this. I ask myself, um, do I trust the source? Do I trust the source of that? And the person who's giving me that feedback, do I trust that source? So, so for example, if we're, if, we're, if we're searching the Scriptures to find an answer to some dilemma we're facing, we should always trust the right interpretation of the Scriptures. We, we need to remember that we sit under Scripture's authority, not over it. And so when God speaks to us through His Word, His Word is always reliable and it's always trustworthy. And so we trust His Word. God Himself is speaking to us through His Word. And so if that is the answer we're receiving, even if we disagree with it, we say, I need to conform myself to God's Word, not how can I get around doing what God's Word said. But suppose it's a person, a fallible human being like me or somebody else, maybe the person sitting next to you, that's giving you an answer that you don't like. Well, frankly, there are some people that we trust more than others, right? It's true of all of us. If, for example, if my wife tells me something, if she gives me some feedback that maybe I didn't want to hear at the moment, I'm going to tell you something. I never, ever, ever, for even a moment, wonder what her ulterior motives were in telling me that something. I don't. I trust her implicitly. And after 28 years of marriage, she's given me reason over and over and over and over again to trust her implicitly. Some of you in this room I've known and walked closely with for 10 years now. And you also have a high level of trust in my life. You tell me something, I go, oh, that's it. I need to take, I need to be serious. I need to take that under consideration. Others of you, I'm just now getting to know and you're just now getting to know me. And so obviously your level of trust is not as high in my life and my level of trust isn't as high in your life. But we need to consider the source. When we're hearing an answer, we need to consider the source. But we don't stop there. Second, closely related to the first, is we need to ask if the person that we're, who's giving us that answer, is the, is the advice or the answer they've given, is it consistent with the teachings of the Bible? Is it consistent with the teaching of the Bible? So even though I may have walked with some of you for closely for 10 years, you might be as, as close a brother in Christ to me as I have, or even if my wife of 28 years were to tell me something, give me advice that's not biblical, that's not consistent with what the Bible teaches, I'm just not going to heed that response. And nor should you, because we sit under the authority of the Bible. On the other hand, you know, there might be somebody who says, you're, you're a guest today, you've never met me before in your life, today's the first time you're here, and you might come after this service and give me some biblically-based feedback about an issue I'm addressing. Maybe somehow you know something that I'm going through. And by God's grace, I'm going to listen. If it's biblically-based feedback, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to do my best to heed your counsel. But here's the point that I'm trying to make here in this first point, is that God gives us answers. Sometimes He does that directly through His Word. He speaks to us through His Word. Other times He does that through, God, through His people. He allows His people to speak through us. But at any rate, He gives us answers whenever we need them. 
That's point number one. Point number two is God gives us a friend when we need one. He gives us a friend. Here in verse 15, David has now seen firsthand that Saul is out to take his life. I mean, he's known this already, but here's just another example that Saul is out to take his life. And David is taking refuge in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, leaves Gibeon. He travels to Horish. The text says to strengthen David's hand in God. Beloved, this is such an incredible act of friendship and love. That, that Jonathan would travel to see David to encourage him in this way. Now you might think, well, I would do that for my friend. I, ho- I hope you would. But remember the last time Jonathan did something like this? The last time Jonathan stuck his neck out for David? Saul hurled a spear at him. Saul tried to kill him for it. And now Jonathan's taking a 55-mile round trip to go and see David. It's not something that's going... He's not going to be able to do that in an afternoon. He's going to be gone for several days. There's no doubt that Saul is going to find out about this, but yet Jonathan says, I'm still going to see my friend because I need to strengthen his hand. And not only does he go, listen to what he says. This is in verse 17 of our text. He says to David, Do not fear... For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. This is the first time. It's the first account when somebody in Saul's family has publicly, out loud, affirmed that David is going to be the next king. I mean, we've seen hints of it in the text up to this point, but this is the first explicit affirmation of it. And of course, since we know the rest of the story, we do know that indeed happens, right? But Jonathan also says here that he's going to stand next to David on that day. Now, beloved, we have no reason to doubt Jonathan's sincerity in making that statement, but unfortunately, Jonathan's going to die alongside his dad before David officially takes the throne. But Jonathan also lets David in on a little secret. He tells David that even his father, even King Saul, knows that David is going to be the next king. Now, of course, Saul is doing everything in his own power, right? He's, try, he's trying everything to, to make sure that doesn't happen. But Saul, if you will, in his heart of hearts, he's seen the handwriting on the wall. He knows that this is going to happen. And so I want us to consider here the kindness of God to give us friends like Jonathan. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? Do you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother? Beloved, you know that we weren't created to walk through this world alone. We, we were created to walk in community. It's built into our DNA. I mean that quite literally. Built in, you've thought about that? It, it, it takes separate strands of DNA from two different individuals before a new human person can be made, right? It's right there in our DNA that we need community not just to thrive, but even to live, we need community. In the Old Testament, our need for community is seen in the first marriage. It's seen when when God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to create a helpmate for him. And her name was Eve. And together they became one flesh and they were fruitful and multiplied. In the New Testament, our need for community is seen in the church. It's seen here in the body of Christ. It's seen in the unity we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But the church is not a social club. It's much, much deeper than that, beloved. The church is a group of people who all confess Christ as Lord. 
and a people who have covenanted together to live life together, to live among one another. And the members of this church, we have made a covenant with one another. Here, here are just a few lines. I'm not going to read the whole covenant. We do that about once a month. But here, here are just a few lines from our own covenant. We've covenanted together that we will not forsake our assembling together. Beloved, when, when, we, when, the, when, when a member of this church goes missing, we ought to take notice and we ought to take action. We ought to reach out to them to let them know, you're missed. We love you. And it's noticed when you're not here. I can't do that by myself, and you individually can't do that by yourself. But if we collectively did that, what message does that send? And we've covenanted together to rejoice at each other's happiness and to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Do you, do you notice there the relational nature, the relational actions that are happening? That we rejoice with one another and we mourn with one another. We've covenanted together to walk in Christ-like love and to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and to faithfully strengthen one another. That is such a beautiful statement. Do you think about that language? Imagine what life would be like if we all walked together in Christ-like love. Imagine a life without any backbiting. Imagine a life without any gossip. Imagine a life where, the, where, where our starting point is thinking only the best possible motives of our brothers and sisters. Imagine if we genuinely exercise affectionate care over one another. Beloved, we ought to deeply care about one another. And, and yes, I know you might think, well, you know, Pastor, the people sitting around me are willful, stubborn sinners. They are. And it's hard sometimes to love a willful, stubborn sinner, isn't it? But it's not just the people sitting around you who are willful, stubborn sinners. You and I are also willful, stubborn sinners. And so we exercise this care. It's a mutual care for one another. And finally, he says, we've covenanted together to faithfully strengthen one another. Again, we should want to seek the best for each other. We should want to see ourselves and those around us becoming more and more like Jesus. And I pray to God that you and I, that we'll find a friend or multiple friends right here in this body that would be a Jonathan to us, that could encourage us when we're low. That's point number two. Point number three is God gives us an intervention. An intervention. This is in the latter half of the text, verses 19 through 29. David, he's made his way into the wilderness of Ziph, but the Ziphites um, are not on his side. They're on Saul's side. And so they make their way to King Saul. They tell Saul that they know where David's at. And they ask, they, they strangely specific whereabouts of David. They, they say he's in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakaliah, which is south of Jessamine. I mean, that's like strangely like specific uh, GPS locations for him. And so they encourage Saul to come down and take David, but this isn't Saul's first rodeo. Uh, he's been after David before, and David's gotten away, and so he's been through it once too many times, and he's not going to jump the gun this time. Saul compliments the men of Ziph for their decision to let him know where David is. 
But Saul wants further assurances about where David's at. And so the men of Ziph, they leave. They get better intel, if you will, about where David is at. And once they locate him, there at the end of verse 24, in verse 25, Saul and his men go after David. Again, David hears that Saul is after him. And this time, though, it appears that Saul has gotten the jump on David. David, we're told, is on one side of the mountain and Saul is on the other side of the mountain. And in verse 26, we're told that David and his men were hurrying to get away from Saul. You know, there's a bit of panic, if you will, in David's camp. And at the end of verse 26, we're told that Saul and his men were closing in on David. This is the end of David. Or is it? You know, as, as I was reading this passage and thinking about it this week, I couldn't help but go in my mind to, to that uh, 1990 movie, The Hunt for Red October. You, maybe some of you have seen that movie. I, I won't try to tell you the whole story, but there's a scene toward the end of that movie, The Hunt for Red October, where, the, where the, a larger submarine, the Red October, is turning as, fast, you know, it's turning as fast as it can underwater, trying to get away from a smaller submarine that's trying to sink her. But since the smaller submarine is more maneuverable than the larger submarine, it's just a matter of time before the smaller submarine takes position behind the Red October um, and to fire her torpedo. It's a really tense scene in the movie. Um, the smaller submarine finally gets in position, locks, locks her torpedo on the Red October, and fires the torpedo. And then you're waiting, you're like, okay, the next, the next sound we're going to hear is the Red October going boom and blowing up. Everyone's expecting the Red October to be blown out of the water. But just when we're expecting the worst, the USS Dallas, an American submarine, comes in and interrupts the torpedo lock and saves the Red October. Now, I, I know that, that analogy between the movie and this chapter is, isn't quite accurate because David, if you will, has the smaller, more maneuverable army. But if you'll allow, Saul is getting ready to blow David out of the water. It's a foregone conclusion. There's no way for David to escape this. But then along comes the USS Philistines. Okay. A messenger comes to Saul and he tells Saul that the Philistines have made a raid against the land and so Saul has no other choice but to call off his chase with David and to tend to the Philistines. And David escapes by the hair on his chinny-chin-chin. And the place is called the Rock of Escape. Or some of your translations might have there the Rock of Divisions. David ultimately he leaves there and he takes refuge some 16 to 17 miles east in the strongholds of Engedi. Beloved, Saul had David in his crosshairs. There is not a thing in this world that David could have done to save himself to get away from Saul. There's no way David could have prepared for the rescue he received. He had, you know, David had absolutely no authority over the Philistines. The Philistines probably wanted David dead just as much as Saul wanted him dead. But David was delivered nonetheless. Now sometimes we might look at a story like this and we think that it was just dumb luck that saved David. He was, he was, the, right, he was in the right place at the right time. But we know better. It wasn't luck that saved David because there's no such thing as luck. In Christian, in Christian theology, there's no such thing as luck. It was the providence of God. It was the intervention of God that saved David. Maybe, maybe you have a problem right now and you feel like you're 
if you will, in the metaphorical crosshairs of your enemy. You don't see a way out. But beloved, I want you to know this. I want you to know that you can trust God. Even at that critical moment, you can trust God. He may not give you the answer you want, but He is faithful. Trust Him in that time. Point number four. We see that God gives us a Savior. You know, you might be asking, what are these stories about? We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel for several months. Oh, sorry about that sound team. That was me hitting the mic. Um, we've been reading one story after another story here in the book of 1 Samuel. What, what are they all about? You know, are, are we supposed to read these stories and come away thinking if, we, if we're just more like David or perhaps if we're even a better version than David? If I was just more like David, then things would be better for me in my life. Is that, is that the point? No, beloved, that's not the point. These Scriptures here in 1 Samuel as well as through the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, they're meant to point us to Jesus. They're all about Jesus. Now, if you don't trust my interpretation of that, maybe you would trust Jesus' interpretation of that. Right? In, in Luke chapter 24, you needn't turn there, but I'm going to read just three verses. In Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, if you want to check it out later, uh, Jesus said this, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Beloved, all the Scriptures are about Jesus. All of them are. And so, think about the friendship of Jonathan and David. How, how does the friendship of Jonathan and David make us think about Jesus? Well, let me, let me tell you a story, just very briefly, um, a story about another famous Jonathan. This guy's name is Jonathan Edwards. He's an American theologian, perhaps the best American theologian that's ever lived. When he was on his deathbed, he said, and I quote, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? If you don't trust Jonathan Edwards, maybe you would trust the Apostle Paul. As he neared the end of his life in his last letter to Timothy, Paul wrote this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He said, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May I not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Beloved, I don't know where you're at with your friends right now. Sometimes it might feel like all of your earthly friends have abandoned you. Sometimes it might even be true that all of your earthly friends have abandoned you. But take this to heart. Jesus has promised never to leave us never to forsake us. Rebecca read those words earlier from Hebrews chapter 13. That's what Jesus says. I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with us to the end. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and kindness toward us. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for saving us. 
Thank You for sending a Savior even before we recognized that we needed a Savior. Before we were ever born, You sent a Savior into this world. And Father, for those of us here who have recognized our need for a Savior and have trusted in that Savior, in Jesus, Lord, we give You praise. We thank You, Father, that You care enough for us that You love us even while we were sinners to make a way for us to have a relationship with You. Father, if there's anyone here today who's never, maybe they've never recognized their need for a Savior. They've never recognized their own sin. Lord, I pray that today, through the power of Your Spirit, Lord, that You would cause them to recognize their need for a Savior. And that by Your Spirit, You would allow them to call on You to be saved. If they have questions about that, they need to talk to somebody, they can certainly talk to me, or perhaps they have a family member or a friend here that they can talk to. But thank You, Lord, for allowing us to know about Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for these stories of old that all ultimately point to the grace and kindness You have given us in providing for us a Savior. Lord, we love You and we give You praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, here's a scripture for our benediction. You guys can put that up on the screen. It says this from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2-6. through six. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may take, make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. Take care. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.